some questions today, if there are any. Um, if not, I've got some that people have left in notes and also just a few little things that I wanted to uh, put out there. Are there any announcements? No, not really. Okay, so um, please, anybody. Is it Lawrence? Yeah. Okay, that's not really happening, so I'll just go for it. <laughs> go ahead. I was gonna. I was gonna say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so um, so my question is around uh, emotion and jhana. Um, yeah, so emotions going to come up in practice and in a retreat, and. The first, in, the first day's instruction to put down uh, the difficult um, and to tune into uh, the joy and the beauty and the appreciation. At a certain point where it feels like they're not mutually exclusive. So, um, so noticing sadness coming up and noticing the beauty of the sadness, for example. Uh, so in the body, rather than necessarily getting into a story and a selfie around some sadness, actually noticing uh, the the kind of just the warmth in the heart around sadness and the, and the beauty of it, noticing uh, uh, like the sensations of kind of the eyes watering up, and that being seen as uh, deeply beautiful. Um, and a couple of times, noticing how actually those sensations can become PT. I was like, oh, this is interesting. This could actually become a springboard into jhana from, from the sense of appreciation of the emotional spectrum. Um, so, uh, oh, and also noticing actually that the kind of the quieter the mind becomes and the more the sense of the body and the mind become collected uh, that when there is uh, there is thoughts around the emotions that actually there's a much deeper sense of kind of personal insight around what can what can be revealed from those emotions and how to work with them in the life and or or in the imagination or in the, on the cushion so so I kind of I want to ask you with relation to this and similar things with um, anger, kind of having flavours of uh, of less ill will and papancha and becoming uh, more a sense of power, personal power and uh, conflict resolution. But, you, know, some, you know that sense in the body of actually this could be really quite a skillful place to be in. Um, so I wanted to ask you specifically in terms of this retreat, what would be your guidance on working with emotions when they come up, where, whether to hang out with them, listen to them, explore them, uh, cultivate them in a quasi-jarnic state, or whether to notice them, 
steer into the joy and and uh, lessen the fabrication of the emotion. Okay, thank you. Um, see if I get all that. Um, so, yeah, context, context, context. So there's the context of this retreat, and that retreat, this retreat, or each person's version of this retreat, is in the context of each person's life of of practice, larger practice, and each person's life. Okay, so if, for example, uh, so this thing about anger actually being able to transform it, a kind of filter out the poisonous elements and transform it into something that's just power, uh, not power over, but just power, you know, the ability not to shrink, not to go crazy, not to, not to spit poison everywhere, uh, but just to, to be powerful and upright and do what needs to be done. That's a really skillful thing. Um, it's not the primary objective and intention of this retreat. It may be that in practicing jhanas, as you say, well, there's just more clarity, there's more sensitivity, there's more energy body awareness because of the way we're practicing the jhanas, okay, or primarily, because I'm emphasizing a lot about sensitivity and attunement and all that. It could be that um, the possibility to make those kinds of transformations um, or... I want to ask you about the other one, the other example you gave, but the possibility of making those kinds of transformations is actually increased on this retreat. And you actually, a person sees, maybe for the first times, these kinds of possibilities. Um, So that's great, and it's something to note. And on the course of this retreat, um, it, it still takes very much second place. So that when there's a choice, it's go towards the joy, go towards the pity, etc. In the context of one's life, I will always say both and. We want everything and we want to not be afraid of doing this because when I'm doing this, I'm not doing that or doing that because then when I'm doing this, not be afraid of the territory there, be able to do both, have accessible to both and really just left with what would be skillful right now. The the kind of overriding determinative factor of this retreat is that if we want to do jhanas, like I said right from the beginning, the intention has to stay really steady. Otherwise, very easily it gets into all these other explanations, wonderful as they are and really important as they are in the, in the larger context. But for a jhana retreat, and this goes for a solitary jhana retreat or whatever it is, the intention needs to stay steady. So um, I don't think I said put down the difficult uh, 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 in the opening um, so much as you know, again, this thing about context and let it take second place and what are we trying to do and can I see the context and see this retreat in in that larger context, that larger freedom and range of possibility which I want and recognize, okay, but just for now, I'm going to do this. So you could, for example, just bookmark those two possibilities that you mentioned and, well, they're slightly different. So let's say the second one, the transformation of anger into um, I'll come back to the first one because I was a little unclear about it. Um, you could bookmark that and say, I'm going to practice that later. You know, um, I mean, that would be the absolutely strict way of doing it. But, you know, of course, you can have a little wiggle room at the sides of things. It's just if, uh, if that gets too much, the whole kind of current of intention starts to fray. Um, we really have to take care of the intention to, to cohere it. But you really 
um, it sounds like it would be a really good idea for you to explore that thing with anger and transforming. Most, you know, it's a really, really good thing to be able to do. Most people are just kind of victims of their own anger when it comes up, don't have the skill to transform it in that kind of way. So to be able to do that is great. It might be that it feels a little bit easier when you're, you're not actually on even on retreat, you're kind of half on retreat. So, um, so that's encouraging. Remember, you and I talked about the gray area being important, not off retreat, not on retreat, but this kind of the gray area to be able to kind of be clear, what am I doing in practice, to pick up things in practice, to notice things. So this is really encouraging. It's not saying I need to be on retreat fully to notice these kinds of things and be able to transform. It's telling you something about the gray area of being, you know, is there really a so much duality between being on retreat and not retreat? What I really meant by gray area is get to see it all as gray, really. Even on retreat, I'm not really on retreat. I'm just living in a kind of sort of hotel in Devon where, they <laughs> where there's nothing much to do but meditate. It actually can be really a much more skillful way of thinking about it. Because retreat, and then it's all like, oh my god, retreat, okay, get to work. And it all becomes so <laughs> tight. Or retreat is where I behave really, really well, and then out there I get into really bad habit. It, it, this is really, really, really important. So when you and I had that conversation about the gray, I really meant just see everything as gray. Everything's just a different shade of gray, or a different shade of purple, wh whatever you like, you know. Um, so, so that's really important, but, but yeah, primarily it will be bookmark it for later. If you, uh, yeah. The fact that you're noticing it, the fact that it feels possible, that's great. It may be just as noticeable, just as possible outside of retreat, and I, ho and I hope it is, or just fractionally less. But that fractionally less is not, you know, you just need to, okay. It's, it's if you want to learn that, you can learn it, and, it, and it's really uh, priceless, this, this transformation of a uh, anger that way, yeah? Uh, also, the larger view about purple. Um, in terms of the first thing, y y the first example you gave, you used the word sadness, and I'm just wondering whether it was more just that, you know, sometimes the heart is just in a state of being touched, and tears come, and, and strictly speaking, it's not sadness. I'm not sad that X or Y happened, or that I've lost A or B or, or whatever. So. This is actually quite important, uh, a distinction to make. So th there's, as we, I say as we develop as human beings, but certainly as we develop as meditators, we should be moving more and more into that territory where the heart is very easily touched and tears are not strangers, and, but not tears where we just kind of sinking and collapsing and we just end up being a, a puddle with no power or no clarity or anything. So that kind of heart opening uh, or, or capacity to be touched is a really, really important, I think, uh, you know, element or strand of, of the path um, by all kinds of things, you know, beauty, nature, companionship, uh, all kinds of things. Sometimes the touching feels with a smile and joy and sometimes the touching feels with tears, but it doesn't actually equate to sadness. So. Just from what you said, I, I, I wonder what you would, what distinction you would make now between those yeah. two. Yeah, looking back on it, actually, I was maybe um, a little um, quick to use the word sadness. Actually, the example that I'm thinking of is a few day, quite a few days ago. Um, it was more actually a, a beauty that was so touching it brought to sa brought sadness. Yeah. Um, but it brought sadness or it brought tears? Uh, sorry, <laughs> exactly. Did it twice now? Yeah, it brought tears. Okay. Yeah, and. 
you know, looking at it now, uh, I was exploring some of that kind of secondary intention of being with the emotion rather than the primary intention of yeah. the jhana practice. Yeah. There was a, uh, a, a kind of a capacity, a sense of a capacity to be with it a lot more in times where, you know, tears would really come you yeah. know, practicing here and sensing beauty. Yeah. Um, here was a sense of, well, I wonder, you know, what's the capacity, what's the stamina for perceiving beauty? Can I play with that a little to the point of well, where do the tears come if I yeah. extend that range? Um, so, yeah, it was, I, I guess it was just things to note um, and also to then notice what's going on in the body and can that be perceived as pleasurable? Oh, look, PT. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. Yeah. So that's all, that's all really wonderful. Um, this, let me just pick out a few things. So this distinction that I've been trying to make between sadness and being touched or touchable yeah. or moved, to me that's a really important distinction. I, I encounter it a lot in, in yogis. It hasn't actually occurred to me. So there's tears or something or there's a quivering in the heart. I must be sad or I must be upset. And, mm, you know, not necessarily. So that's actually a really important distinction. When we come, w when we talk about emotions generally, um, you know, I would say, and I have said that I don't think we're ever going to exhaust what there is to explore about emotions as human beings. Um, so you just rattle, oh, I could do this. Where's the boundary? How much can I tolerate? Can, what if I see it this way? Can it turn into this? These are, you know, just one, two, three right there. And there's there's so much more in terms of experience, but also in terms of just how how we're conceiving emotions. You know, so to me, the exploration of emotion, along with several other explorations uh, of a human being or a areas, aspects of our existence, is endless, endlessly fertile, endlessly rich. You know, um, the fact that you're you know moving into different intentions, not it's not right or wrong, but there is something, as I said, really important about being really clear and staying with a central intention if you want to do jhana practice, if you, if you want that to develop. Um, but that's great. That's really great, Lawrence. Yeah, well done. Um, and yeah, so definitely that being touched because it relates to, or being touchable because it relates to, it's a, it's a kind of open-heartedness or openness of being, which I said actually, that's more primary than anything else in the, in the arising of PT. More primary than sticking your mind, nailing your mind to the breath or whatever it is. So, so you can understand how that, how that fits together, yeah? And then to be able to kind of ride that and help it go to peace, that's, that's wonderful, you know, all of that. There was another question woven in there, right? I've forgotten what it was. Um, uh, yeah, I think it was around whether or not um, yeah, emotion can be this be another springboard to jhana, and I think you've kind of opened. Yeah, no, we that said that. I think there was another one hidden in the middle, but it it doesn't matter. We can okay. we can do it another time. Yeah. Okay, great, very good. Yeah. So. <clears throat> My question is around um, the word radical, which you use a lot. You've been using more over the years, and um, you've used it in this. You've used it in, in other contexts, in relationship to ethics, uh, insight. 
And you've also used it now in relationship to like jhana practice. And what does that mean? To why is that so important? Or, I mean, you know, I think about the middle way. It's like, well, it doesn't fit in a way. Of course, the Buddha was radical in many ways, but. So I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a bit more. Why is that so important? Why has why that become seemingly become more important over the years now that you're teaching? Um, so I, I, I feel like the word radical gets used in uh, at least three ways in English. Um, one is kind of just crazily extreme, you know, like a radical fundamentalist terrorist or something like that. Um, one is just as a kind of uh, one is as, as a kind of euphemism for something unusual. It's radical. Wow, what a radical idea! It's unusual. Um, But the third, and there are others, but the third way is the way I usually mean it more. And radical, the word in English comes from radix in Latin, which means root. Um, so to go to, go to the, the root of something. So to me, if you say radical emptiness, for example, as, as an example I might use, would be um, an understanding of emptiness that goes to the root of absolutely everything. In other words, you can't even go go, be, go beyond it. So, um, if I just if my understanding of emptiness or, or it just just pertains to selves, for example, uh, the self is empty. What there really is is aggregates, for example. Then, to me, that's not a radical or one could have a more radical teaching because the aggregates themselves might be empty. You understand? Um, and then the time in which the aggregates exist is also empty, etc., etc. Et so I, I tend to use it that way. When I used it the other way, I think I was talking about radical, radical uh, practicing s exchanging self and other ra radically. I think, um, yeah, maybe there, I, I again really meant to, to, to kind of... Uh, It was a mixture in terms of what I meant. So radically, as sort of something like more extremely than you might think of, you know. So we we can do we can do a lot of practices a little bit um, sort of just di dipping our toes in a little bit or a little bit half-heartedly. What would it be to really? I'm seeing here with this pain and this and whatever it is. I say I'm dying of cancer, you know, it's like, what would it be to practice exchanging self and other, you know, with all that, all that, and I really mean it. I came to this meditation retreat and I wanted it to go well, and it doesn't feel like it's going well. And just to completely, uh, completely, is there a synonym for radically, just turn it round, really. What In this moment, I give up my my desire for that, because I'm taking on this frustration, this misery, this this failure, this hindrances this not going well in in the in the hope that there's some kind of reciprocal gift for someone else that I may never even meet so in that sense it's like and to really do that and do that full foolhardly with the totality of one's being and and one can if you know that practice you can do it you know you can get you can get down to things like my uh 
you know, my, my very body, my atoms, my mind, this, this, this thought, that thought, you know, so there's a radicality in terms of complete, completeness to the, to the fundaments to the, of, of one's being. So I tend to use it that way, and sometimes it's a bit more just like uh, a sloppy word for um, more, more than you might usually think, sort of thing. Do I use it more over the years? Maybe, I don't know. It's a commonly used word now in the Dharma, so maybe I'm just kind of upping the ante a little bit um, on, on what, it, what I mean by it. I'm not sure. But maybe, I'm not sure what you're asking. Are you just wa- wondering about my teaching? Are you wondering about that word? Or what, what, why, why are you asking? No, I think that answers the question. Okay. It's just those two meanings. And um, I had another question about, um, so you've spoken about like the levels of mastery, you know, which would indicate, or at least subsume, that the, n- the next jhana is sort of on its way, if not there already. On the other end, I'm wondering, you know, what would be some of the conditions or factors or indicators whereby, you know, we'd be spending too much time in a particular jhana? Um, yeah. Um, maybe. Maybe one might have uh, you know very strong experiences of the next jhana that that just happens one over and over again uh, and and that might indicate you know it's not just for example in the second jhana it's not just happiness once in a while and a little bit it just keeps going into the second jhana it's a very clear very vivid experience where you can kind of tick a lot of boxes and maybe uh it it if i've already as you say i've already got a lot of the elements of mastery of the first jhana and i can already sit in there a lot you know for hours and and etc then am i learning anything new at that point in the first about the first jhana um or is it so that's another question am i learning anything new here of course, I may not be learning anything new because I'm not paying attention enough and I'm not playing enough, but I may not be learning anything new because I actually, I've actually know that territory. Um, so that would be another another criterion. Is that done okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, okay, shall I throw out a few things I was wanting to say? Um, some of them are quite little. Uh, oh, I made a couple of mistakes in, I think, yesterday's talk. Um, the first is really not that significant, but just in case someone gets wondering and gives them the wrong sense. So, uh, in that simile about the desert, the wanderer through the desert, right? Um, and I said the desert represents samsara, actually that can't be right because that would imply that the jhanas are nirvana. Um, Or maybe, I don't know, because maybe it's an oasis in a desert. Anyway, maybe the desert represents the life run by the hindrances. I don't know. Maybe it represents uh, samsara and the oasis is not the end of the desert, it's just a little and you've still got to go further. Maybe So either one, but doesn't really matter. Um, second mistake, slightly more significant, um, or I don't know if it was a mistake or it just wasn't clear enough. Um, I said something like experiences of, of deep equanimity or fairly deep equanimity that come from insight meditation are often not actually the third or fourth jhana. 
uh, where there's the equanimity kind of coming coming uh, in such a strong and, and, and beautiful way. However, experiences like some of you know the practice, the, the kind of group of practices that I call the vastness of awareness, um, actually is, as you get into that, there is a real mystical sense of wonder. It is very beautiful. Um, there is a sense of sacredness there. It does really touch you, etc. Um, and it is an experience of deep equanimity. Um, however, that kind of uh, those kinds of opening, what I, what I call the practices of vastness of awareness, um, has a range of depths uh, to it. Uh, so it's something that one can open up just a little bit and may not yet have that kind of uh, almost div divinity to it and sacredness to it and sense of almost the ultimate. Um, so, for example, like one one level of depth is just ev all phenomena seem to emerge out of that vastness and disappear back in it. It's like the womb or the source of everything. And that that very seeing, really, it's a bit like when we talked about the nada sound, how can you use it in, a, in an insight way. It's just a backdrop. Everything comes out of that, fades back into it. Uh, that level of seeing is very, very fruitful for the equanimity, etc. And it begins to have a kind of mystical uh, flavor to the whole thing and divine flavor to the whole thing. As you practice more with the vastness of awareness and it goes even deeper, there's a sense where everything has one substance and that substance is awareness. Everything is awareness. So these are now, now we're really moving into a mystical sense of things and that will have a lot of beauty. So when I said people have just done insight uh, or just opened to equanimity through insight practice. I, I, I didn't really mean that because if by insight practice you just mean I'm just, just watching, just watching, just being mindful, just being mindful and kind of letting go with that general encouragement to just watch and let go, that won't take you to these deep ends of vastness of awareness. You actually have to kind of uh, direct it, do something more deliberate and actually change the practice slightly so that it goes there. So uh, someone just reported they got a bit confused by that, so maybe I hope that helps. Um, in other words, we make the vastness of awareness a practice in itself that's slightly different than regular insight practice. We'd have to change a few things in order for it to really go to these uh, really lovely deeper levels. And then a couple of two or three people are struggling with, or have been struggling um, with, uh, kind of working backwards, not being able to get the first jhana, not even being able to get PT or sustain PT, um, but being able to, for instance, get the happiness or, or something deeper. And so I want to throw this out in case that's common to anyone or common at any point later for anyone. Um, so a few different things you can try if that's the case. Let's say you can get th the happiness and you're, f you're getting f more and more fine with that, you're learning the happiness, but PT just won't happen. Um, if we think about the jhana factors and everything we've said so far, we should be able to kind of almost surmise these things ourselves. So PT is, for instance, um, coarser uh, as an... PT and sukha are both energy body experiences. So I said at first we think of sukha, the happiness, as, as a mental experience. But that's just at first, once a person has had the PT and they want to make the distinction between PT and sukha. Eventually one sees actually they're both just 
frequencies of vibration of the energy body. And yes, they have mental components too. Um, but really, one could see them as just, the sukha is just a more refined energy body vibration than the PT. So what that means, if I want to work, if I want to work backwards, what it means, what it implies is, when I, here I am in, in the happiness and it's going well and I'm kind of in it and I'm stewing in it and I'm drinking in it, then can I, it, listening to the mix of frequencies in the energy body, in the happiness, can I, can I notice the coarser ones, not the more subtle ones, but the coarser ones, and actually tune to them and, and find the enjoyment to them? Because what I attune to is what gets amplified, right? We said that much earlier. You understand? So that might be a way of working working backwards. Um, it might also be that, uh, you know, oftentimes, probably most people, not everyone, but most people notice the PT tends to have an upward current to it. It tends to move up the body. And in a way, when, when I say opening and surrendering, abandoning to the PT, in a way you're really opening the body to that upward current. And that's what all this head tilting back business is, if any of you get that a little bit. You're, the body is naturally being opened, or like we said with the question about the feet, is naturally being open like that. And um, it's opening to what's, what for most people primarily feels like it's got an upward current in it. It can be really strong, can be really, really subtle. It can feel like the PT is actually pretty stable, but within that stability, it's got slight waves of uh, upward waves. Here's a side point I've just remembered that is mi might be important to say, and I'll come back to what I'm saying uh, and enumerate it so we won't get lost. Um, so sometimes people say, well, I thought the PT, I thought you said the PT had to be steady before we work on it, but I, st I feel these waves, like it comes in waves. So then I ask them, okay, think about the sea, think about the ocean. If you think about a wave in the ocean, if you think about a wave near the shore, n near the sand or whatever it is there, uh, that wave uh, or la that portion of sand, let's say, has times when it has water over it, a wave breaks over it. And it has times when the water recedes, right? And the next before the next wave comes and it's bare sand or rock or whatever it is, right? If you go to a wave, hundred meters out and the sea is deeper there, then I still see, oh, there's a wave, there's a wave. Okay, it's n it doesn't break necessarily out there, but, but there's a wave, right? There's a, that undulating motion of the water. But out far to sea there, you're never gonna get, unless there's a tsunami or something, you're never gonna get bare sand to see or bare rock. You're never gonna see the bottom. In other words, out there, the PT, the water, is actually steady enough. But within that steadiness, in other words, it never disappears. Within that steadiness, there's waves. Do you understand? So it does, it's not that it has to be totally still. It probably, PT by its nature is almost, ne well, it might be, but it tends to have currents in it. What we don't want, though, in order to be able to work with PT, we want to make sure it's not a wave and then nothing, bare sand, and then a wave and then nothing, bare sand. Does this make sense? Yeah, so that was a side point. But generally, PT has these up currents. So if I'm, s I'm in the second jhana, it's going well, I've, or I've learned how to make it go well, and I'm enjoying it, and I'm digging it, then, then and but I can't get the PT, or I can't, I can't get the first jhana, then what I can do is see if I can just notice 
any upward currents in, in the energy body experience, maybe in the happiness or whatever. Um, they might be at that point really quite subtle. So again, I have to get my antennae out and just I have to have that, del maybe have to have that delicacy of, of listening, of receptivity. And within that, I start to notice, oh yeah, oh, there are some upward currents. Again, attuning to them, they amplify and maybe that takes takes me to, to the PT or amplifies the PT. Does that make sense? Third thing, that's, that's the second option. The third option is just um, imagine upward currents. Just imagine upward currents. So don't be afraid to use your imagination in these, in these kinds of practices. I imagine them for a little while and lo and behold, the next thing I feel them. And then I can enjoy them, get into them and the whole experience changes. Fourth possibility is um, to Okay, here I am in the happiness, it's going, well, I still can't get the PT. Here I am in the happiness though, I'm enjoying it, I'm getting into it, I'm all that stuff. I've been in there for a while, uh, and I just, you know, a while meaning really some, some minutes and minutes and minutes and, you know. Um, and then I just drop a little, a little um, magic formula in, a little tincture. Maybe the word PT, maybe the word rapture, maybe the word ecstasy or bliss or whatever your word is and whatever your language is. Um, again, the mind at these levels with samadhi becomes so um, malleable, so, so sensitive, so receptive that just, just dropping something like a word in can have a, a lot of effect and is, is a really skillful thing to be able to do in lots of different ways in jhana practice. And the, uh, the fifth thing to say is, generally, probably, if that's the problem, I'm, I'm getting okay with the sukha and the, and, the, and the second jhana, but really not so okay with the piti and the first jhana, then you'd want to be hanging out much more in the really bubbly happiness, rather than too much time, in if, if that's my goal, to work backwards that way, too much time in the more serene happiness. Because the bubbly one from our cooking ingredient uh, thing yesterday has more piti in it. Right? So there's five things, five things you could try. Um, okay. Oh, sure. Please, yeah. If if your experience is you're feeling the PT with these br with these breaks that they're saying there, can you nudge it out for? Um, more often, it's a question of just letting it ripen until that is the case. But having said that, like everything is not so black and white. Um, there's a kind of intermediate possibility which is um, that's the, that's naturally where it wants to go okay it naturally wants uh, oftentimes at first the first p first experiences of PT someone has is is more like the waves near near the near the shore where you get these kind of just comes and then it goes comes and it I'm not even sure how it's coming or what the hell it is or anything um, in time it wants to go there we can do things, let's put it in the negative, we can do things to slow that down, that whole maturing process, and we can do things to just uh, kind of ease its passage, put it that way. And, and th the best thing to ease its passage is just to make sure when, when these waves come, I'm 
somehow neither snatching at them, as the Buddha says, I don't snatch at them, but I'm really making sure I'm open to them. So again, we come back to this, oh, if a wave comes, it's like just, you know, maybe it has a little after echo, and then I really want to open to that, you know. So if, if I'm not fully opening to them, that might be one of the things that actually is just slowing down this maturation process for the your jhana boat to be out, out there. Um, yeah, so that's one thing. Um, and then another possibility as well, again, without too much pressure, is... Um, Even if it feels like it goes badly and I'm believing the mind that's saying, I can't do this and whatever it was or I've lost it or, you know, sometimes it's just worth saying, ah, what the hell, let's just play with imagining my body full of PT, you know, and just, and just, just a little, you know, few moments of trying that, even though it doesn't, it feels like it's uh, not, you know, going to be a pointless thing to do. So there's always that possibility as well. Um, so you, You've got a kind of range of possibilities and answers there, yeah? Okay. Um, how are your hindrances doing today? Or actually, how is your papancha today? How's your papancha doing? How's your papancha doing today compared with yesterday? How's the suffering from your papancha doing compared to two days ago? Uh, these are you know, it's going to be up and down. So wherever you are at the moment, it's going to move. It's going to move. And we're, we're so, so interested in that movement over time from this high amplitude up and down business where we're really believing something and everything's grumpy and we hate Guy House and all that stuff um, with applying the antidotes, but m even more importantly, with the, the wisdom Am I believing, am I just a sucker for this thing? With this kind of uh, questioning of what am I believing here, this high amplitude wave over time, over time, and actually it may take you know weeks or, or whatever, but this is where we want to get to, that this high amplitude, this high amplitude wave becomes just a little, a little sort of, you know, uh, placid caterpillar wiggle. Okay, it's really um, just a sort of energetic, yeah, you know. Um, and so much rests on the belief, okay. So much rests on what am I believing here. W without care, there's a hindrance. I believe the coloring of perception and the thoughts that the hindrance uh, uh, stimulate. The coloring of perception and thoughts are believed and then it becomes papancha, and then that just snowballs. Yeah. So doubt and aversion, for example, I was talking with someone yesterday, even subtle doubt and more, more, even more powerfully subtle aversion will color the memory of, for example, yesterday's wonderfulness or the joy that you experienced two days ago or three days ago. Aversion is like craving, it's a, well, it's a form of aversion like gra grasping, is incredibly powerful. It cannot be there without shaping, fabricating, and coloring whatever, it, uh, whatever phenomenon is in consciousness at the same time. 
whatever phenomenon, that's a memory, a sight, a sound, smell, taste, touch, blah, 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 the sense of self, whatever, little bit, any degree of aversion is going to color that. So yesterday it was just whenever it was, three days ago it was wonderful, and now there's a little bit of aversion in the mind, and I look back and it wasn't that good, or whatever it is. Um, This is what I mean by developing some insight and wisdom in relation to the hindrances and and papancha and what the Buddha calls the defilements, the kilesas, greed, hatred, delusion. Uh, Greed, aversion, I think, is a much better word. Um, uh, Even, and the same thing with with the rest of the hindrances, subtle doubt, etc. I remember... uh, being on, having, you know, getting, I can't remember what stage it was, probably, you know, sounds like it was getting into, getting into the first jhana and really doing that over and over, and at some point doubt comes, and it wasn't even a really strong sense of doubt, so, and I was sitting cross-legged a lot, and I thought, I'm probably just sitting on a nerve, you know, I was sitting with my heel in my perineum, it's probably not, it can't be PT, it's just some, I don't know, I'm pressing on my perineal, is there a perineal nerve? It's probably a group of nerves. <laughs> Uh, whatever Um, so and then the mind starts just these little things but aversion is a killer it's a killer it kills joy and it and connecting again to the uh, what we were talking about yesterday with dependent arising and the teaching about karma little bit of aversion what kind of world do I live in what does myself feel like what does my practice feel like what's my view of things what's my sense of where I am who I am. So, for me, the second hindrance, I, I don't know, I can't remember, I should look it up maybe later, but, um, is so they're usually in the, in the order, sense, desire, ill will, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt. The second one, for me, ill will means I wish someone harm. Okay, so to me that's a really extreme form of the hindrance. The killer at this point for you, I hope, uh, uh, the killer will be um, aversion uh, in a much more subtle way. It's not, it's not even towards anyone. You might get towards yourself, but it's aversion. Aversion will be the killer. And aversion can be to any phenomenon whatsoever. Any phenomenon. Any sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, memory. Any, any phenomenon of, of experience a situation, sensations, a state itself. We have aversion to a state. Um, so this, this, this ends up being really like, oh, watch that seed, watch that seed. Because it's extremely powerful. And it will either have, it will either, you know, that seed, like I said, will sprout and grow and it will be a whole damn forest if I'm not careful. Or even in very subtle seed form, it already is is sending out its toxins, coloring the perception. And even if there's not a lot of thinking, we start believing what we're seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thi- and uh, yeah, if there's not a lot, of we, we start believing what we're sensing, colored through the lens of aversion. So uh, there's something. Again, so much of, the, uh, of the, the gift of this practice is in relationship to hindrances and getting wise in relationship to hindrances. But this is a long-term lesson. It's a long-term lesson. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not something we get like that necessarily. 
Okay, a couple more little things. Um, just to, I think I don't know if we, if everyone needs this, but do we need to very briefly review Sassy? Not not to get hung up on the wrong things. Okay, is Lawrence was wanted to say something? Oh, okay. So Sassy, um, first S suffused. I do want it to move towards suffusion. The whole body saturated and suffused, pervaded and permeated, steeped and drenched, and the whole body involved. I do. Once I've got that, I tick it, and I don't have to bother about it again. Okay, it's done for that sitting. It's done. Okay, so there is a goal there, and I try and move towards that goal. Occasionally, depending on where you are in in your evolution of practice, it won't spread everywhere. I've tried all my little tricks. Da -da -da, it won't spread. Don't worry about it. Eventually, it will spread. But there is a goal, and then I'm done with that job. Whereas, for example, the the A and the two middle S's, us. Um, are <laughs> actually you spell it differently in in the U.S. But anyway, um, ass. It's a little kind of donkey. Um, where was I? <laughs> um, these are infinite. I can. I will never. I will never come to a point where I have. Uh, there's no more possibility. There will never be a moment in any meditation I ever do in my life where I cannot improve whatever degree of absorption I've had, where I cannot, um, where the, the uh, object cannot sustain either longer in time, the PT or the sukkah, longer in time, or with less nano, micro, pico uh, interruptions. And the same goes with, with the mind, that the mind can't sustain either longer in time or uh, with less kind of nano, mino, micro, pico uh, interruptions. So they're infinite. Now what does that mean about how I relate to them if they're infinite? It does something to the goal-oriented mind and the judgmental and the measuring mind. Wherever I am, the direction is that way. And if I feel like, wow, I'm so far gone that way, I've never gone this far before, this is amazing, Great, that's wonderful, and the direction is still that way. And if it's not going so well, the direction is still that way. I, there's nothing to judge here. These things will vary from time to time. I'm gradually working at my skill, but because they're infinite, it, it, ab it releases me from any kind of success-failure notion. Do you understand? This is really, really important. Don't get hung up on the wrong things. So this is, this is why I give the sassy part, what do I do now, but also what's important and what is not so important? What do I need to complete, like the suffusion, and what do I just need to, it just tells me what direction to go in. When we come to the I, the intensity of, let's say, the PT or, or whatever it is, um, it doesn't matter. As long as it's strong enough, and it's meaning it's pleasant, it's obviously pleasant, it doesn't matter. I'm not trying to make it more intense, it will get more intense or less intense, it's irrelevant. That completely lets me off the hook of having to worry about it. And however much I'm enjoying the E, I can enjoy more. So in a way that's infinite, in a way. But part of the art of enjoying is going to be not to pressure myself to do that. But it's a direction. Yeah. So these these are important in terms of our kind of I don't know, micro-psychological well-being, which if we're not careful, can actually, unfortunately, like a 
you know, poisonous fungus blossom into our macro psychological well-being because we've got hung up on the wrong things and we just keep judging ourselves for what's actually, you know, not the right thing to judge ourselves by. Does that make sense? So, a little bit related. Um, you know, this business where it keeps a marinate and mastery, uh, m- marination and mastery, um, and how for me those are really kind of important uh, orientations and aspirations for for the way we're practicing and the way I would like to kind of communicate all this. Um, but mastery includes, um, you know, trying to sustain it long, to sustain it longer. To, to sit longer, let's say with the PT, so I can sit, you know, an hour or more, etc., whatever it is, with whichever jhana, um, and marinating with the elements of sassy and playing with that, um, and all all this business, marinating and mastery and mastery, also includes sometimes, you know, it's not going so well today. Okay, now I'm gonna kind of emphasize in this sitting, or for the next 20 minutes, I'm just gonna emphasize my steadiness of focus. In a way, partly what I've been a little bit trying to de-emphasize, but uh, there are times when it's like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Maybe I can do that with the PT, which is quite a refined object, and I'm, I feel like I need to understand, oh, I'm learning to pay attention to a more refined object. It's actually hard. Most people would not be able to do that. So I need to train myself to be able to stay with a more refined object. And that's the the micro view, the kind of subtle view that I have of what I'm doing and what my emphasis is in the next 20 minutes sometimes. And other times it's like, yeah, I'm working on the, you know, I'm working on the eighth jhana generally, but actually I'm just, right now, what I need to do is go back to my base practice and work on my focus and steadiness there. All that's, normal and available for someone who's just got the view of mastery is what I'm doing. It doesn't mean that I'm, in other words, it's wide and, and there's a, there's a, uh, a range and we're responsive uh, to, to shifting the emphasis at different times. It includes quite a lot. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so flexibility, responsibility, responsivity and inclusiveness. Um, and in relation to mastery, someone wrote a question, which I have here. Um, so let me read the question and then maybe say also a couple of things. Um, we say that the arising of jhana depends on causes and conditions. We also say that mastery of a jhana includes being able to enter it at will, which could perhaps be understood as implying a certain independence of at least some causes and conditions. So there's an apparent contradiction there. Could you please elaborate on how to relate to the two statements and how to skillfully relate to the notion of entering at will? Yeah, very good. This is, um, this is exactly one of those things uh, w- when I said I will contradict myself, uh, but it also, more importantly than that, it, it's, it's an instance of things where, again, we want a range of views and we don't want to get locked into this view or that view, okay? I would say for anyone at all, I mean, I can say, give them the right uh, medical drugs and their ability to enter a jhana at will will be severely compromised, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) If you've had enough, you know, general anesthetics and stuff, (laughs) you know, just... So 
anyone is going to have some limit on their enter at will. It's never going to be 100% of the time. Never. You can have illness, be low energy, you could be tired, you could be, you know, a million different things. Digestion, upset, a, a lot of different things that will at times mean that even someone who's, you know, a master, etc., will, will never, will not, in that on those occasions, be enter, be able to enter at will. So, so that, so, um, and, but still, it's good to aspire to. So it's it, you know, in this, in, in a way, it relates to the whole teachings about self and emptiness of self. In a way, to see it as a jhana depends on causes and conditions is a way to conceive of jhana just without self, without the self coming in and getting all tight about can I do this, can I not, am I failing, am I not, D- um, how how you know what badge do I get, have I achieved, etc. It's just causes and conditions. I think, uh, a- and. And yet there is the development, of, from, the, from, the, from the point of view of the emptiness of self, seeing in terms of causes and conditions is, is seeing in terms of the, not in terms of self, yeah? But we can also, and we need to in life and in the Dharma, see in terms of self. I do this, I choose this ethically, I make this choice, I cultivate this, I cultivate metta, etc. I choose to cultivate metta, all that. It's... Um, it's normal and healthy and skillful kind of view or conception of what's happening. Uh, mastery won't, in other words, setting it up as a goal actually give again gives us a direction. If I never mentioned it, then people might be just sliding around all over the place and not not getting as much fruit out of the whole practice because they're not trying for. It wouldn't occur to them to try for certain things that just go under this umbrella of mastery. Does it, do, you, do you understand? You wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to you to try this or that. But if you say, oh, there's a thing called mastery and see if you can do it. And, and it depends on intention. So you could say intention is one of the causes and conditions. Is intention ever, going back to what I said earlier, is intention ever a completely sufficient cause and condition? You know, it's necessary but not sufficient. Intention by itself give me enough drugs, give me enough this or that, starve me, y- you know, whatever, too tired, etc. Intention itself is not sufficient, you understand? But I need to mention it because it actually is a very powerful ingredient of the causes and conditions, but it's never sufficient. But the larger point here has to do with teachings about emptiness. And to, again, I want the range of views. I want, I want to be able to, to drop. I, here's a situation. Here's something I have to do. Here's something that happened to me. Here's something that I did wrong. Here's something that I succeeded at. Here's something I'm doing great. Here's something that people are praising me for. Here's something that people are blaming me for. At times, I want to have available to me a way of viewing all that that, that deconstructs the self out of it. I see in terms of causes and conditions. And that can be extremely liberating and and healing and take the pressure off the self, the self and measuring the self and blaming the self at times. Um, But if I get stuck there and I say, well, that must be the right way to view things because that's Buddhist, right? Not self, no self, there is no self and all that emptiness. I think one's stuck in in a partial and incomplete view of emptiness. 
The, em- the empty, the again, sorry, Boaz, the radical emptiness of self means actually that any view of self, um, even the view of there is no self, is eradicated, ripped up from its root. And what that means is all views become available to us, including the view of self. So uh, someone who's really understood the emptiness of things and the emptiness of self can move um, easily between uh, views of views that kind of uh, look in a way not in terms of self and views that look in a way in terms of self. So I'm a bit tired today. Is this making sense? Yeah, this is really, really, really important. Really important. When, uh, to my way of understanding, uh, it, it, if one hasn't seen it, one hasn't really gone gone deep enough. It also just won't make sense in one's life. Here, this collection of aggregates wants to marry that collection of aggregates. <laughs> this collection of aggregates would like to have sex with that collection of aggregates. It's like. <laughs> It's not certain things. This, colle- this collection of aggregates would like to compose this piece of music in praise for the collection of aggregates that is the universe or, or whatever. It, it doesn't, it, if we just look that way, there's going to be enormous uh, areas and dimensions of our, of our being, of our lives, of our souls, of our existence that um, are not supported and that's going to be a real problem. It would be a real problem for ourselves, it would be a real problem for our relationships, it would be a real problem for the uh, society and, and the planet. And so sometimes you get this shadow side of Buddhism that always wants to deconstruct things and, and see things that way uh, when actually um, I do need to be uh, not just comfortably able, or able to comfortably move into a self-view, but able to move into a self-view that's actually beautiful and soulful and enriching and gives meaning and all of that. And I want, I want both of those. So these two contradictory teachings, mastery and at will and dependent on causes and conditions, yes, contradictory, complementary, but we want them both and they're, they're helpful at different times. And in a way, they're they're not completely contradictory. I suppose the truest one is dependent on causes and conditions of which intention is one, but never completely a sufficient one, just just by itself. Does that make sense? Is that okay?
Yeah, thank you. It's a shame you don't have the microphone there. Let me see if I can just... Um, so Marco's saying, I in a way, grateful to the jhana practice for enabling him to see that, that there was a hierarchy of views happening here, and the sort of, this is really just causes and conditions was trumping the view that, oh, I can do this with my intention. And, um, and so, really, really, really important, yeah. Uh, you know, so if we come back to, so if, if we come back, how do, I, if all these different views are available, the question is, why do I choose this one over that one at any time, right? If, if actually they're all legitimate, and I'm given permission, as you say, and I, I hereby give you permission, um, it's like, how am I going to choose between these different views? Uh, that becomes the criteria, and, and that's a really interesting question. Now, classical dharma is just was very simple. What reduces the suffering here? Yeah. So we can get attached, like I said, we can get attached to a view of it's really just causes and conditions and, uh, and, and things like that, and there is no self, and, and, and there's a kind of attachment there, but if it comes in too soon, too quickly, and too pervasively, it, it kind of prevents a lot of other really good stuff opening in our life, and, and the views, other views that might in certain situations deliver m much more uh, relevant fruit. Yeah. If someone, and like I said, if someone is uh, practicing the jhanas and they're starting to get grandiose, look what I can do. A, as I pointed out when we talked about that, it's very rare. If they're, if they're real jhanas and they're going in and out uh, enough, it, it's, it's very rare, I think. What's much more rare is the opposite view. I'm failing at something and, and da da da. Um, and then this then this view of just, it's just something that's cu coming out of causes and conditions. When the causes and conditions are not there, it's, it's not there, you know. Um, so that, that view, again, it's helpful for the relieving of that suffering of the contraction of a certain self-view, which is judging myself or, or thing, you understand? So I'm using it for that purpose. Um, but there might be times where someone's adopting the other view. I, I can do this, and actually it feels like that's actually releasing some suffering or, or counterbalancing some history of suffering that I can't do something, or you know, it could be anything. But in classical Dharma, the framework is, yeah, there's all these views, which one do I pick up now to look through to perceive this situation uh, in order to, to, to reduce whatever suffering is there? in order to heal whatever suffering is there. That's the criterion for adopting this view or that view. Yeah, so that, that's really important. Um, we can add to that and enrich it and make it more complex, but I'm, I'm not gonna do that now. Um, so but this thing about mastery is also quite interesting because it may well be um <coughs> that and this is something to check, I think, in, in, the longer in the larger scheme of things, each person to check, do I have somewhere, maybe consciously, maybe really semi-consciously, a kind of philosophy or a kind of psychology or a, a mixture of the two that, for example, doesn't like the idea of mastery or doesn't like the idea even of the self's autonomy, as if I'm just... You know, I much prefer the view of things just happening and this thing opened up, so I kind of flowed with that and then 
conditions were such that this thing opened up and I flowed with that. And it can be a lot of beauty in that, a lot of really lovely flow and a lot of even creativity and all kinds of things. But, but, but behind it, and usually kind of semi-consciously, is a, is a little bit of an entrenchment in a view uh, that doesn't allow a notion of the autonomous self deciding and acting and choosing X or Y, and perhaps even gaining mastery. Of course, one can be locked in, in the other view as well, but this is something, again, in spiritual circles, quite, quite interesting um, to check out. And again, my opinion is, why can't we have both? Why, ca why can't we have both and have the whole range and explore what it might be that, pre pre well, we don't like that view so much. What's preventing us um, from seeing the beauty in the view of the self's autonomy and the self's power to choose and the self's decision to, to do something and work at something and get something or, or vice versa, but it's much, much more uh, rare in spiritual circles. So explore that, what's holding us back, what we don't like about it, and actually liberate it. So both become available to us. Um, why, why not? You know? So these are, these are kind of subtle imprisonments that we uh, can hopefully begin to see as we do more uh, practice, whether it's jhana practice or whatever. Jhana practice, as I mentioned a couple of you know, times, it's, it's kind of ramps up the our ability to see all kinds of really subtle locked places or defilements. So you, people generally would have no idea that such a practice would would do such a thing. You tend to think, well, insight practice where I'm just opening or mindfulness, but I'm just opening and kind of being with whatever comes up and giving everything kind of equal interest. That's where I'm going to notice these things. But actually, there's a lot of hidden things that one can not notice unless you actually try working in certain ways, for instance, with a goal, with the idea of, let's say, mastery or this or that. And, and that starts illuminating things, hidden corners, shining lights into hidden corners that we wouldn't otherwise have even realized were there. So to me, there's, there's, there's all kinds of secondary gifts to jhana practice, which I think are, each of them are immense, you know, and we don't, we don't tend to think that way or realize that at first. Yeah? Are there any other questions? Yes, is that Sabre at the back? Oh yeah, please with the mic, thank you. Can I just, before you start, say one more thing about that? So a very common experience as you do more jhana practice, it will be that the uh, you almost feel like the mind has a momentum to go, let's say, to the third jhana. I was intending to go to the first jhana, and it just goes to the third jhana. As you do more and more, that, thing become, that kind of thing becomes very common. I could just sit here and wait, and the mind will just go somewhere. We've done a lot of jhana practice, or there's that propensity. Or, or it could be any jhana. It just wants to go, or, or I've aimed it there, and it goes over there, or whatever. Um, this gets more and more common, so that a lot of people actually end up practicing, that's how they practice, if they've done a lot of dedicated jhana practice. They just sit down and they see, what, see where it goes. And there's not much intention at all, it's just let's see where I slide on the ice today. Um, and I used to say, it's as if the mind has a mind of its own. Um, you know, it's really got this kind of other intention. So when you've done a lot of jhana practice, that can be fine, because they're all good places, but I would still balance it with um, 
can I still retain some, even if it wants to go there, can I still uh, you know, choose to go somewhere else at times? So there's really, again, there's this range. Sometimes it might be you need to let it go where it wants for a little bit, and then uh, um, you know, the horse wants to go to the carrot shop uh, for a little bit, and then you go to bingo, um, whatever. But uh, I think I think this idea of keeping open the range of the range of freedom, the range of possibilities, to me to me is something really really important. So, okay. Anyway, Sabra, please. Uh, it's just a question, a little bit about um, what you just pointed to about frees up locked places. Yeah. Um, and really seeing that process over the last couple days, just some like, um, you know, uh, both psychological but also um, in the body, like uh, places of deep, old, subtle um, holding and tightness, kind of like uh, just beginning to move open, you know? And um, there's so much beauty in that and also um, it feels like it takes time and I'm curious about how to relate to that because I see how my mind can kind of like keep sticking going back to something I'm calling locked (laughs) and really it's opening but um, yeah just some yeah thank you this to me is a really important question so um it, let's say two two kinds of locks to oversimplify right now. There's a kind of mental lock, actually three kinds of locks. Um, there's a locking a locking in view, which is usually the hardest to uh, even identify. You know, unless you someone says something or you read something that kind of like, whoa, hold on. Um, we don't even realize what views we're locked in. So there's that kind of locking, and I've, I've said a little bit about that, um, but. Generally, over the years, I've said a lot about that kind of thing. Um, then there's a locking in a kind of mental territory. So I was, for instance, ta- saying, was it yesterday or sometime, just saying about the second jhana, for instance, hey, don't neglect the really bubbly happiness, you know, especially if that's a little bit alien to your personality. It's like that's not kind of uh, congruent with your usual shapes yourself takes. Um, we can get locked into certain emotional bandwidths or territories. So person yeah, has certain, uh, whatever it is. Um, but that would be one example. Um, so those two, the locking in views and the, lo- and the m- mental territory locking, I would say, you know, with The locking in views can, can, there are times when one has to actually be really kind of, not aggressive, but vigorous and kind of alert. And actually really I'm, I'm trying to look, I'm really trying to question things and where I might be locked and open things up that way. So there's a real sense of I'm trying to, I'm trying to do this. One will never come to the end of that, but, but it's a really, the, the intention can be quite strong and the action can be quite strong. Like, well, I'm going to start reading stuff about this or whatever it is, you know. Um, in the middle territory, this, this, or the second one, I'll call the second one, um, 
Sorry, I'm tired. I'm numbering in my head backwards. Did I call the, the view the first or the third? Okay, so I need to reorder my numbering in my head. Um, the first, the first um, yeah, can be quite vigorous times. There'll be times when actually that's, that's, that's the most important thing in practice. It's actually the most important thing in one's life is this looking at the views I have of all kinds of things um, about what the Dharma is, about what awakening is, about all kinds of things. Um, that, that one needs to actually be, be active and, and uh, vigorous in one's, in one's questioning and exploration, and, and that might mean a wide exploration. But the intention and the action can be quite strong. In the second one, um, what I'm calling kind of a lock into mental territory, let's say this example I gave, it's like, well, I, I'm, qu I'm very used to being quite peaceful and equanimous, but the real sort of bubbly happiness is kind of alien to me. Um, then I would say a, m a middle version there is gen gentle un unlocking, you know, but the unlocking happens just by hanging out in that kind of happiness, for example. I don't need to, you know, put too much pressure on the whole situation or too much pressure on that pattern, on that lock. Yeah, I just, I just need to, oh, if something is opening that kind of is expanding my heart range, effectively my soul range, then, then I want to linger there and let it do its work rather than just say, yep, taste of that one tick because I've experienced it once and then go back to a kind of equanimity which is supposedly deeper so it can kind of go under the, 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 the mask of a deepening of practice. Yeah, does this make sense? But the third one, um, the locks in the body, this is a, in a way a little bit more delicate. Um, so yes, as we practice jhana, and to the degree I in any formal session that there's a, a real kind of absorption and suffusion, etc., that f those physical locks tend to um, dissolve. And, and that dissolution may last after the session. It may last... If it's a if it's a habitual, sorry, if it's a, a non-habitual, it was just locked. I've never had that particular lock before. Then it can just go. That was it. It doesn't come back. If it's a habitual lock, something gets um, unlocked when when there's the jhana or whatever, and that unlocking can last some degree of time afterwards. I would just be careful not to put a pressure on it because it may well come back. There's a kind of body karmic uh, knot there that is just a tendency to create that kind of lock. Okay, um, and we can play with this playing of perception and see the knot as pity and see the knot as happiness, and all that's going to really help. But I would be really, really careful about um, two things. One is um, making a project of uh, making uh, yeah too much of a project of unlocking the body. And it's it, it, a lot of people get into this. It's really a big deal. I've actually kind of, if I see that as a long-term project, that's not dharma, to me. I may unlock this or that, or this or that. That may unlock at different times through different practices, through different playing with perception, through different states, and that's wonderful and that's great. But if I make that, if I kind of get a bit obsessed with that, then that's something else. It's not dharma anymore. I've actually shrunken my view of what Dharma, I'm not saying this is what you're doing, Saver, I'm just giving a general teaching now. So. Um, I've shrunken my view of what the Dharma could be 
and um, uh, into something much smaller and gotten a bit obsessed about something and using something as a kind of m measuring stick uh, for how I'm doing. Um, so sometimes with a lot of practice or a little practice, things that have been habitual may go forever. It's just gone. And sometimes they may go for a little while and come back. Sometimes they may go for a long while and come back. But I really have to have my view uh, there qu quite right. Um, you know, the Dharma offers us much, much, much more than just that kind of unlocking of, of energy patterns. and. Um, Something else I was going to say, but I've forgotten it. Another way of saying all that is is just to be very, very light with with when you're playing with that, and kind of hold it in a, make sure it's held in a much larger context. And even the way you're playing with it, and playing with perception that way, or or, or the state, to be to be really quite light about it. Um, how does that sound? Yeah, so helpful. Okay, good. There was there was good. There was another piece with that. I, I feel this is really important. Um, yeah, it was something about just about how to view all that. Yeah. Um, um, not coming, uh, sorry. Uh, you know, if we go back to this thing said about playing with perception, and you can, you know, with enough, you get into this enough and you can, that here's a lock, here's a contraction, here's a pain, whatever it is, and pain in energetic terms is just a contraction of energy. And you can play with perception, see it as PT and it unlocks, etc. But what's most significant about that is even if it is, I look at it and it never comes back. And it's been kind of mildly bugging me for the last 10 years or 20 years. To me, what's more significant about that shift is, uh, is the dependent arising of perception. And for that coin to drop, it may well come back. It doesn't take anything away from the insight if it comes back an hour later, 10 minutes later. In the long run of things, the, the fruit of seeing, seeing that through playing with perception, what I perceive as a lock actually is, is liberated, is unlocked. Um, understanding then the dependent arising of perception, therefore the implication for emptiness, that is way more significant than I've got rid of a discomfort that has been kind of bugging me for 20 years. Uh, You want to say something, Saber? Yeah, that I think that's what um, kind of the power of what I've been playing with um, is really seeing this tendency to um, s look at the problem and um, and the training in widening back out again and like coming back to the fuller fabric of the energy body, yeah. even whether or not the lock is unlocking. Yeah, you know? yeah. So thank you. That's that's a middle ground as well. So you've got even this again. If I so if I had to hierarchize, hierarchize these three things, you got this this knot, this lock that has been with me for twenty years, on and off, and it's just I kind of just wish it would go away, and it does. It goes away forever. Versus what you just said. I've trained 
the attention and, and the chitta so that when there is some discomfort in the body, I don't have to go there. I can actually put my attention elsewhere and be pretty happy. And there's this lock there. And then the third one, where one actually sees that the lock itself is empty, because when I look at it in a certain way, it dissolves. If I had to put that in hierarchy of order of importance, I would put the disappearing of this bugging thing, I would put that at the bottom. Uh, and, then, and then what you said, and then the emptiness one at the top. Yeah. So this, just this training, that you, that, thank you for saying that, is, it's so important. Again, we wouldn't... It's really understanding, again, what's the relative significance of different experiences that we have. And, but this has everything to do, and I'll maybe come back to this, like, why are we practicing? What are we practicing for? And how easily we can have... Um, I'll say this again. It's up to us why we practice. You know, it's up to you. You can have any reason why you practice. It's not for me to tell you why to practice. That's for you to find out, why, why do I want to practice? But the range of possibilities of what we're looking for when we practice is huge. And sometimes what kind of person very consciously just chooses something quite small in terms of the reason they're practicing. Um, what also happens though is over time, the reasons for practice shrink uh, somehow or other. And that's quite interesting as well. Or we've just not been told what fruit there is on offer. And so we're kind of operating under a, li a, limited, um, a limited menu of, of potential. You know. So all this is, is actually really, really key. Does that make sense? Um, I'm going to stop trying to remember what the other thing <laughs> I was going to say was. Um, Yeah. Does that feel okay for now, Sabra? Definitely. Yeah, okay, good. Um, just someone else. Is there anyone who hasn't? Yeah, Mikhail, just, just to give more people a chance. Yeah, Mikhail, please. Thank you. Yeah, um, I would like to ask about, uh, in relation to this discussion, um, about the malleability of perception uh, in regards to pain. Uh, because uh, as you mentioned in some talk before, um, one can, through this practice, start to slowly uh, notice that actually any, any Vedana, uh, any experience can be uh, sort of um, looked uh, can be seen as as pleasant. Any Vedana can be seen as pleasant. In in the if there is pain, one can sort of see uh, and distillate distillate or somehow um, what's the word you used? Um, um, filter out the pleasant out of the mix and just take that in um, and. Once that really gets going, um, uh, I, at least I, I got really excited about that. I, it was exhilarating and, and, wow, this is meaningful. This is really deep. Um, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> and some intuition in me says that, uh, well, this is, the, this is um, it's possible to go wrong 
or this is it's possibly possible to overdo this uh, if one if one sort of like first if gets first contact with such a malleability of perception in regards to pain uh, one can get uh, impression that or oh, this is about this is what uh, freedom from suffering is all about um, and then starts to apply this with almost like any experience any pain uh, all the time like like bliss 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 yeah give me that um, and it's wonderful for a time for sure but but then um, an intuition in me says that that is not completely healthy in the long run and there might be a sort of like a, a mistake uh, or a risk of mistake in view. Uh, what would you comment on this? Yeah, trust your intuition, absolutely. Because, you know, to me, if someone hears this idea, it came up recently on a seminar I, I did, so someone can hear, hear this idea and almost get the idea that, oh, if I just get really good at that, then I can have a pain-free life. And then they just start trying to do this e everywhere. And that would be missing the point. The, the point is this, this ability to play with perception to the degree that something painful becomes something pleasant, for example, or becomes just an empty space or lots of other possibilities, you know, uh, or becomes the face of the Buddha nature or the face of God or whatever, this ability to play with perception, um, if I limit it to this pain to pleasure thing, and then I think, oh, great, what a, what a useful thing, and then I'm trying to live without pain, that's, that's just, again, it's, it's actually taking what's not, there's two gifts on offer, and, you, and one takes the much, much poorer one, which is freedom from pain. Now that sounds like it's Dharma because Dharma is about reducing suffering and all that. No, the lesson from it, the potential lesson from it, and it will have to sit within a context of um, other teachings on emptiness and other kinds of playing with perception and, and all that stuff, is that perception is malleable and is that nothing exists as anything in particular. As it's A thing is not this or that or anything independent of the way of looking. And that tells me, eventually I see that in lots of different ways, to lots of different depths and degrees, through lots of different directions, and that starts telling me about the emptiness of all phenomena. No phenomena whatsoever is fundamentally existent as anything in itself. Um, it, it is this or that dependent on the way of looking. That is a is a knowledge and a knowledge that can come into to, you know, not just intellectually into the heart and then the knowledge that everything is radically empty like that to me uh, liberates in a much grander way it liberates independent of this pain or that pain it liberates in relation to the whole of existence and all phenomena it brings to, I say even more important it brings uh, a kind of unspeakable joy and wonder and uh, sense of mystery and grace into the whole fabric of existence at, at a very deep level. To me, that's the point. If rather than now I'm just really good at, hopefully I can get to the end of my life without any pain. <laughs> it just, it seems a little narrow to me. Yeah, you can use that occasionally when things are rough, but that's not the point. The point is more, what's it telling me? Now, if I just experience it once or twice, 
it will be like, well, okay. But if I, as I said, if I start to experience lots of different ways, at some point, or to some degree, the coin drops about the nature of existence itself, about the nature of things, the way things are, the true nature of things, the emptiness, the suchness of phenomena. And, and knowing that liberates in a much broader and deeper way rather than this or that instance. I can still have this pain or that whatever, but it liberates in relation to life and death. And uh, and it brings, I would say, a wonder and a sense of sacredness uh, that's almost difficult to put into words. That the level at which one one, and to me, that's the point. Yeah. Anyway, anyone's good, just like the mastery thing. There's n no one's going to be able to do that all the time. And the, the the Buddha, you know, was in plenty of pain in his old age and had to. It was only a certain kind of meditation that would that would release him from the perceptions of pain, etc. I can say. It struggling with pain quite a lot at times and um you know so it again it's like what's significant what's not so your intuition is, is spot on there yeah what's the real gift here uh, it's m m much vaster in scale you know than just that kind of neat neat trick that we can do that that helps us feel better yeah thank you yeah okay maybe one more did you have something Jason? Uh, we need that we need the mic sorry <coughs> Oh, is there anyone else, Jason? It's happy to give up his. Anyone else? Okay. Yeah. Please. Uh, so on the on the issue of um, locks in the body, I I think uh, for better and worse, I've been exposed to some teaching that has really emphasized that and maybe overemphasized that. And for periods of my practice, I have overemphasized that, um, unlocking things and opening somatic blocks. Uh, it's gotten much gentler and it has been a, a concept that's been present here a lot, but only in so far as it prevents, uh, f the flow of energy that would, um, allow PT and jhana states. So, um, I'm glad about that. The thing I was curious to ask you about uh, was related to something I talked to Robert about earlier today, which was uh, in the long-term big picture, do you see those as um, things that could suggest certain like life changes or lifestyle changes uh, the, the outside lot. of practice in order to work with or relieve one of them? Uh, do the locks suggest that it might be a good idea to do certain lifestyle changes? Yeah. Oh, some of them might, yeah. I used to have, um, I used to have for many years a kind of cramping of the uh, lower intestine. Um, and it was just a, a you know, a, a very common uncomfortable sensation. It felt like something was lo locking there. Um, you know, very, very regular visitor in my meditation practice um, for years and years and years, um, you know, even. Um, I learned a, a lot about that, ab about clinging and perception and letting go and everything, um, which for which I'm really, really grateful. You know, it became a, a, a what was what was, you know, not terrible, but but actually, you know, ongoing sort of difficulty was something that I learned a lot from. You know, um, in hindsight, it was also, you know, I, 
um, found that when I eventually found, because I, I had uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, when I found a certain kind of probiotic um, and started taking that, that eased a lot. So, you know, yes. Uh, I, I think I was speaking more about like, um, well, what we talked about was kind of suppressed desire. Um, or things that things oh. that I might want that I'm not seeing through, or things that I might say that I'm yeah. not saying, okay. that kind of stuff. But something like that may not ex- may or may not express itself as a lock in the body. In other words, what often happens is someone suppresses their desire or doesn't see a project through that they want, and there's no sense of anything being particularly locked in the body. What's actually happening in the body is... Um, they're not allowing energy to build up in the body, you know. So it, it, and and so they don't particularly experience a sort of great holding contraction thing, you know. Um, so I don't know about using that as an indicator of something psychological necessary at a very subtle level, and we'll come back to this. Well, we've already touched on it. at a very subtle level. The presence of a lock is the presence of the perception of a lock in any moment or a contraction in the body is an indicator at a very subtle level that there's aversion present in the mind. Subtle aversion. Um, but that's more to do again with dependent arising and insight practices that can then, re- when I release that aversion, lo and behold, the sense of the lock unfolds, you know, uh, dissolves. Um, so, so some of these more, let's say, I don't know what you call them, per- personality locks or stuff like that, um, they may or may not express themselves in, in long-term uh, f- physical stuff. And sometimes with people, they do very clearly. So, uh, and it may or may not be related but, but to these larger issues. But, and sometimes they don't really express at all or in any noticeable way. And sometimes they express but in a way that's not obvious to that person, even when they've practiced a lot with the energy body, but may be obvious to someone else who's kind of a bit more sensitive to that and, and used to work. A person doesn't realize they hold they hold in a certain way. Um, and that may be to do with, yeah, it's a more psychological. They hold in relation to life or in relationship with someone or in relation to th- their self-expression. They're just holding back. And, and sometimes, you, you, you know, it's, it's sensible to someone else, but they don't, they have no notion of it at all because it's actually quite subtle and there's no, there's no discomfort with it. Sometimes the thing about these more severe is there's discomfort, and discomfort is like waving a red flag, saying something's wrong here. So there can be the the whole range there, really. I think what's more important here is that if you look at your life and you feel like, "Uh, I am kind of squashing my libido, uh, in the larger sense libido, uh, in a certain way, or I'm dampening my desire, or I'm not allowing, I'm not in some way inhibiting... uh, either my desire to accumulate and burn or or my desire to follow through or whatever, that's extremely significant, I would say, massively significant. And again, all that can hide under a nice Buddhist facade of well-behaved equanimous yogi who let, lets go a lot very well. You know, maybe you should be a teacher. Um, y- you know, it's... So this is a really, really important point, I would say. And um, to to be... Uh, 
take that up as an investigation, then you can see, okay, how much does that have to do, how much are these physical locks really, in really trustworthy as indicators of the relationship where that is. But probably, if that's the kind of thing you're talking about, long-term projects and stuff, my guess is is that this will the physical manifestations will only be parsh partially helpful as indicators. There's a bigger thing going on, and and your job will be to investigate that. Going back to what we said in terms of the views as well, what views are operating, what um, so in terms of those one two three that I said earlier, what views am I locked into? Maybe a view about desire, maybe a view about self, maybe a view about uh, you know. Buddhist practice, it could be all kinds of things, or nothing to do with Buddhism, but the views. Then there might be a view, you know, the other thing might be, um, uh, at the, the second one, it might be a, a, an emotional lock, like this territory of actually sitting with a, with a really strong desire, and everything I talked about the other day, and it will, if it's really strong, it will burn. And a lot of people say, I, th I don't like burning. There's a danger that I won't get that, that. I'll be frustrated. I'll fail. People will think this, or I'll think this, or whatever it is. Or I just, I just cannot tolerate that. But I cannot tolerate that much desire. It's uncomfortable, or it can be uncomfortable sometimes. Um, and so it might be I just have kind of um, shut the door on that emotional territory. And then some of that, in the, the, again, the boundary between what's emotional, what's physical, what's emotional, what's energetic, you know, there's not a clear boundary there. But again, it might be that a person uh, just, just I, I cannot tolerate that much energy in my being. Um, so there's a lot of things here. I think it's immensely important, immensely important. And, you know, what does it mean to be a liberated human being? What does it mean in relation to this? Am I really liberated if I can't actually feel? any desire or I can't follow through on desire if I if my only option is to let go is that r is that really liberation you're not saying that but but it's a, it's a larger question so to me it's it's a it's really really important the investigation of all that you know is probably you know not something that's you know depends how long this has been around but it's probably not something you know that happens ah I got it now you know there may be long-term habits here of thinking, of view, of energetics, of emotional territory, um, all, all kinds of things, you know. So it may take a while, it may involve all kinds of explorations from all different angles and levels and, and all that, but I, th I think it's hugely important, yeah. So I don't know, does that... Does that yeah, totally, yeah, yeah, very normalizing. Uh, and again, you could decide to see that as an investigation that's outside of Dharma, or you can expand your view of what Dharma is, and that becomes an investigation that's really at the core of Dharma. Um, in a way, that's up to you. It doesn't really matter. But um, there's certainly ways of doing it both ways, in, in or out. Yeah. So I, I, th I think it's very important. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just, uh, I'm not sure whether to read these notes. Um, Someone's written, an, it's anonymous, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it says, you don't even need the jhana to be happy. I realized this today and it totally blew my mind, just wanted to share that. Um, yeah, to that's totally right. <laughs> I'm just wondering what the, if I've missed, the, missed something here, or if, they w if the person wants to say a bit more. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah, great. Good. Um, yeah. So two things. 
Go ahead. Oh yeah, please, please can we? Uh, yeah, thanks with the mic. What I wanted, I was in a very happy mood when I wrote it, and there was a relief coming from it. Mm. Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. So this is what what I wondered. This is really important. So. Um, so two two things here. Um, one is that as we practice the jhanas more, the jhana factors like piti and sukha, happiness, can come out, out can come up outside of a formal session very very strongly. And sometimes that's it, it's very obvious to see the connection with with for example a sitting we've just had we get up and we're in the lunch queue and we're just overflowing with happiness but sometimes it seems almost a bit random it's just like oh, it wasn't going so well and then suddenly there's this eruption of happiness so that's all very normal yeah the jhana factor of sukha can come up even very strongly outside of a of an actual jhana yeah outside of the total absorption in it there is still an important difference between you know, absorbing into a jhana and everything really collected and the happiness. But the happiness itself is also really a treasure, yeah? To gather it more, we marinate in it and sit in it. But this is really great, yeah? But then also, as you said, it, took, it, it was a relief because, you know, sometimes, again, so much can happen. We say, okay, this is the goal and there's these stages and there's eight of them and, you know, and then there's this idea of mastery and it's so easy for the self-measuring and the critic and all that to come in and just, and then we get, you know, it's all very tight. And then we realize, oh, actually, it, it doesn't need to be so black and white. Have I got it? Have I not? This It can come up, you know, anywhere. And that takes some pressure off. So that's that's great. And then thirdly, you know, uh, which isn't what you were saying, but yeah, it should be obvious. There's plenty of people who experience happiness in the world who've never heard the word jhana and never had jhana. So ha- happiness is just, this wasn't what you were saying, Hannah, but... Um, but we should we should realize that too that we're not saying here that no one who hasn't experienced a jhana can ever be ever experience happiness no but but there is something about the degree of jhanic happiness that i think is the potent that is sometimes there that is pretty extraordinary yeah but that as you've found can come off the cushion as well i've never been this this sort of happy you know so all that is great yeah. And on that note, I just read this, I don't know again, depending on how your hindrances are doing and how your papancha is doing and all that right now. Should I read this? Leave it? I'll leave it. Huh? No. Did someone say no? Oh, okay. <laughs> Can you sign something that you... you uh, that you take responsibility for your... (laughs) 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 Um, Okay. I, um, dear Rob, in second, I heard the central heating as happiness, and that pretty much blew the roof off. So against playing with perception, or a perception was played with just by being in the jhana. Um, More joy than I have ever felt ever. Then I came out of third jhana. To, this is someone who's done, worked, a, spent a lot of time working on this stuff in the past, so it's not their first jhana retreat. Then I came out of third to walk, and everyone seemed like these radiant, translucent Buddhas, which is what you are, by the way. <laughs> um, wow. So it uh, doesn't sound like there's a question there, but there's some sharing. Um, okay, we should probably end because if my interviews are seven, one. 
other thing, um, no, I think I'll, I'll, I think I'll leave it for now. Let's just, let's just have a bit of quiet together. <coughs> Thank you, everybody, and um, time for tea. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.